Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where each week we tell you about strange things that happened in history. I'm your host for this week, Barnaby King, and joining me as ever is my co-host, Amelia Edwards. Yo. Hello, how you doing? You What's down up? with You down with the kids there? <laughs> <laughs> Always. Indeed. <laughs> well, we're, we, we should talk about our own child, uh, our rabbit, Lombardi, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> for he is effectively our child. Don't put that pause in, it'll freak out our friend in Australia. <laughs> Yes, that's a good point. Anyway, no, I'm talking about our rabbit Lombardi because, as you well know, he's a lovely boy, but he can be very destructive. Yes. Being a rabbit, he has nibbled much of the furniture in this house, (laughs) as well as skirting boards, the walls, he's ripped up bits of carpet. Mm -hmm. And this is just natural bunny behaviour. Yeah. Do you know Peter Rabbit was a house rabbit? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that is why. Yeah. (laughs) But the thing is, obviously, we're just like, you know, it's annoying, but put up with it because he's so lovely and he's ours. Mm. But if he were in medieval Europe and (laughs) he did this to someone else's house, he could be arrested and put on trial for his crimes. Um... Okay, I just want to double check that you are aware that he is a rabbit. Yes. Because you often talk about him as though he were a child, (laughs) or at least some sort of human. Oh no, I know he's a rabbit. He's got the ears and everything. Okay, Um, but he could get put on trial. Yes. Now, obviously nowadays, we don't do this with animals. We don't think that animals, you know, have that capacity for moral choice that would allow like trials and legal system to get involved yeah yeah they're like small children (laughs) yeah but during actually as far back as antiquity we -hmm. have some evidence of this but more around sort of europe between between the sort of 10th right up to the 18th century the 18th century yeah wow there were practices of putting animals on trial for various different crimes okay this was so commonplace we know this definitely happened Mm -hmm. what we don't know for certain is why okay there are many arguments and there are many stories about animal trials that are some historians debate the veracity of. They they don't think it happened. Okay. But enough did happen that we know it was a thing. We just we we don't know exactly why. We've got okay. theories, but I mean as a medievalist. Yeah. I'm going to give you a basic one. Go for it. Medieval people just really loved the legal profession. They Absolutely. Were obsessed. Yeah. Like, way more than people give them credit for mm. because you never really see medieval lawyers in any. No. Medieval history, but they were such a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. The history of the legal system is varied and interesting mm. and complicated in many different ways because of the different sorts of law that were flying around at various countries at various different points. Um, but it did seem that it was pretty much across the whole of Europe that mm. it was common that animals could be put on trial for various different crimes. Okay. Most notably, you kind of had two divisions. You had the secular court mm-hmm. and the ecclesiastical court, the religious court. Okay. And usually it seems to be the case that the secular court would try an animal in cases 
Usually it was quite a severe crime that was committed by one or maybe a few animals. So, for example, there are stories... For some reason, there are a lot of stories of pigs killing people Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense in medieval times because they used to just wander the streets a lot. Absolutely, yes. And they used to eat people's babies. Like, that was a thing. Yeah, there was a story about a... um, a pig and her five piglets uh, who encountered a woman and her child and unfortunately the pig, the mother, trampled the child to death. Yep, yep. So Pigs are scary, man. I mean, they are, yes, they are. And this are. was before they got bred to be like real small and pink and cute. Yes, absolutely. This is not, <laughs> this is not babe we're talking about, the <laughs> no. talking pig. It would be pretty dark if halfway through that film babe just trampled a child to death. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway... That'll do, pig. (laughs) Gets out a rifle. (laughs) So in those sorts of cases, you had a definite single or a few animals, and particularly they they belonged to a household. Yeah. So they could be tried as kind of part of that family. I mean, that makes sense, because really you're saying you shouldn't let your gigantic pig wander the streets. So in this particular case, the pig was unfortunately sentenced to death. Okay. I mean, I don't know what was going to happen to her otherwise. Well, yes, exactly. The owner was also put on trial Mm -hmm. and found guilty of negligence. Yeah. For basically allowing the pig to be in a state where it could trample the child. But the death of the child was not put on the responsibility of the owner. That yeah. was very much the pig. Okay. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Like, they're trying to find a way to create the idea of manslaughter, right? Yeah, effectively. Like, they're going, we don't think that this is the owner's actual responsibility. It's not their fault that the pers- that the child died. But they but did. They shouldn't have let their pig wander. Yeah, they allowed a situation in which this could happen. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. It's just that they're trying to work a way around something. It does. Where it gets a bit more complicated is when we get to the ecclesiastical court. Cool. Because <laughs> why? Why is the Pope holding a court <laughs> for all these flying ants? <laughs> well, that is actually that's very relevant because typically the cases that we be heard by the ecclesiastical court were cases where you couldn't really deal with an individual or a small group. There wasn't an owner. Okay, so we're talking like wild animals? We're talking about specifically things like swarms of insects. Okay. uh, Slugs, beetles, and rodents as well. Okay. Anything, generally you could put them under, I guess, vermin. Mm. um, Because obviously they didn't belong to anyone, so they couldn't be tried as part of a household. And it would be very hard to, you know, try the individual flying ants that (laughs) did something wrong. So these cases were usually uh, cases where the swarm of insects or whatever had usually it was destroying crops. Yeah. Because obviously that was a very big deal. Because not just you're not just relying on it for food, but for trade as well. Mm -hmm. And Basically, people got pissed off when this happened, and you kind of need someone to blame. Yeah, I mean, again, like that sounds, it sounds really stupid to try, say, a swarm of locusts. Yeah. But at the same time, okay, so I did a whole unit on, like, when I was at university, a whole module about witchcraft, Mm. right? And witchcraft, like, there were people accused of witchcraft in the medieval era, but the big witchcraft trials come in the 1600s, after the medieval era's ended, and after Catholicism's effectively being got rid of in most of the areas that Mm. have witchcraft trials. They're mostly, like, Protestants. 
Yeah, there, there's um, some argument that animal trials were kind of a precursor to witch trials, but you continue on with your story. I'll talk about that in a sec. Well, okay, so here's my theory about it. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, one of the reasons why there were so many witch trials was partly because in the 1600s there was really bad weather, yeah. which we've talked about before. Mm. Like, that was the Russian volcano thing, right? Yes, yeah. It the... wasn't in Russia, it was in Peru. Well, the, yeah, the, the volcano was uh, yeah. in, around South America, but it was most af- it most affected Russia. Yeah, but it like caused massive issues with the crops, yeah. and so people had to take their stress out on something because yeah. that's what people do when they are starving. Yeah, so they took it out on women mm. mostly. Yeah, and like twenty percent men. Yeah, um, so. I'm wondering whether this is a way for people to get their stress out without harming other people because that's what people kind of inherently do. Yeah. It's like you have to blame something, otherwise you'll go mad. I think that's a pretty solid argument and it it's kind of reflected in how these cases were brought to trial. So sometimes when when animals like individual animals like pigs were put before the ecclesiastical court Mm -hmm. it was usually they were being tried for either being victims of demonic possession or they were demons that had incarnated in the form of these animals right so it definitely has that same sort of thing where it's like Mm. we're finding something to blame and we're saying that it is the thing we know is a bad thing, exactly. namely demons. Yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes there's a suggestion that swarms of insects had been sent by Satan. Yeah. Um, it gets a bit dodgier when you could also make the argument that it was sent by God. And this did happen, that there was a sort of... The argument was whether or not the swarm was sent by Satan or God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that is actually a heresy, but I've forgotten which one. It is... Um, this actually does have some relation, the story I'm about to tell, to heresy. But okay. we'll get to that a little bit later. Because, as I said, this is such a widespread phenomena that mm. it we're not going to do just one episode on this. I, I'm, almost, I'm almost certain we're going to come back and do some more of these stories. Because I'm going to focus on one particular case in this instance. Okay, so it's going to be Welcome to That Time When, the comedy history po- podcast where we tell you entirely about animal trials. <laughs> Well, we'll do some breaks between them. (laughs) But I just mean that, you know, this is a well we can come back to. This is a rich vein of weird history. Fantastic. So the case I'm going to talk about today is the 1522, possibly. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Why? Um, So like many famous animal trials, we don't have great sources for it. Oh, they didn't keep the records? Not not really. Not for all of them. Okay. Or some were lost or missing or destroyed. Um, what some country t- is this? This is in France. Okay. So, like, England's trials are usually very well Yeah, archived. so uh, England and Britain in general uh, kind of had a... We had a pretty solid history of our legal system. Yeah. Like, we got it earlier, like, codified earlier than many other places, mm, which meant Magna that... Carta. We, yeah, which meant that we ended up having a lot more records. But places in mainland Europe, it was a lot more fragmentary for a lot longer. And that's such a shame, because it means that... So, as, as a young student, I mm. spent so much time reading through 
minutiae of court records from like yeah. the 1400s and some steward who had stolen who had stolen hay yeah. from the from the manor and how many shillings he was fined yeah. and then you look further back and you get the same man being made the steward in the first place <laughs> and why that was yeah it's like oh god this is so dull but you get to see a lot of like really specific yeah. stuff yeah so unfortunately places like france at the time um their law was so fragmentary they basically had separate legal systems if you're in the north of france and if you're in the south that makes sense because they were way more like disparate for a long time yeah so the north of france had something that was closer to our common law system right so it was kind of constantly being evaluated and remade by judges Uh, whereas in the south of France, you had it more adhering to what's known classically as Roman law. Okay. It was a lot more codified. It had some specific things going on. But even then, it was a blend. Like, yeah. it was not strict Roman law. It was a mix of other things going on. Okay, cool. So I'm going to go with 1522 because that's the generally accepted year. Cool, cool. But, 1522-ish. Yeah. We are in the French town of Utan. Utan. Yes, it's A-U-T-U-N, and I think I've got the pronunciation right, but I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, you told me the name earlier, and it was Autumn, which I like because it sounds like Autumn, but I don't think that's right either. No, I think it's Utan. Okay. Uh, it is. It still exists. It's a town that's almost smack dab in the centre of Burgundy. Okay, cool. And it actually has a pretty rich history of its own. Uh, it was started as a Roman settlement... Uh, a town known as... <laughs> and they called it Fall. <laughs> no. But it's pronounced like Fall. <laughs> it was a Roman town originally named Augusta Dunham. Uh, okay. Named after the Emperor Augustus. Damn. And it was basically the capital of the province. Oh, okay. Uh, unfortunately, as the Roman Empire collapsed, mm. the population slowly decreased and instead kind of centred around Dijon. Okay. Which became the actual capital of the area. Yeah, well, they had more food yep. because of the mustard. Yeah, the mustard flows like water there. And they used to be able to scare off all the ravaging pigs just by waving the mustard pots at them. <laughs> Being like, they'll get you! Yeah, no one in Dijon had a blocked nose. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Utan, despite sort of declining a bit, didn't really get into a bad spot. Um, because it had a really advantageous position between two major rivers. Okay. So it was good as a trade hub. Right, yeah. It also had soil that was not good for growing grapes for wine, which was actually pretty good for it, which meant because it meant that they could focus on grains and things that, you know, <laughs> people needed to actually eat. Oh my God. Imagine being in the Bordeaux area of France and you can't <laughs> grow grapes. You yeah. can't grow grapes there. They're probably there being like, damn it. <laughs> but the thing was that the grain were like, it was good soil for grain. Right. And they're like, you're the only people who could stop us from starving drunkenly to death. Yeah, essentially. Essentially, yes. Amazing. Yeah. So they managed to sort of keep a pretty good amount of wealth going on. Yeah. Uh, enough so that they actually, uh, they had a cathedral and they were actually the bishopric of the area. Oh, okay. Which, for those who don't know, the bishopric is the seat of a bishop. Mm. Like It's, it's, it's where their, the bishop is. Yeah, it's their diocese. Yes. Yeah. Um, the cathedral, however, wasn't 
great. It was a cathedral dedicated to a a, a kind of an obscure early Christian saint. Oh, I love these. Uh, yeah, by the name of Saint Nazarius. I have not heard of Saint Nazarius. Neither had I, and that's basically the extent that seems to be known about Saint Nazarius. <laughs> the name? Uh, yeah, I it think... sounds like someone mispronounced Nazareth. <laughs> And Nazareth is not a thing. You're thinking of Nazareth. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> You've combined Lazarus and Nazareth. I have. Which actually is very appropriate. Oh, because cool. the uh, the people of Utan decided that they were sick of this cathedral. <laughs> they wanted... Ten out of ten shit cathedral. Yeah, they wanted a better class of saints to venerate in their cathedral. Okay. And thanks to a misunderstanding, they got it, but not in the way they kind of <laughs> thought they would. Okay. I think that's quite rude, isn't it? Saying, oh, I don't like this saint anymore. Well, We're not up to Saint Nazarius anymore. No, no one's him. but the thing is, what do you want? You want a good cathedral or a good place like that yeah. and a good veneration of a saint to attract pilgrims oh that's true because they need to get one of the heads of john the baptist yeah because pilgrims were basically the tourists of the era yeah okay and they could bring in a lot of money and attention effectively to the town right so what they decided to do was they were going to find the relics i think by this it generally means like the remains Mm. of lazarus the man that jesus raised from the dead oh my god okay that's quite an undertaking it's quite an undertaking And I think they were probably a bit shocked when they managed to get a hold of them. Right. So they brought them back and they looked over them. And it was pointed out that rather than getting Lazarus, the man Jesus raised from the dead, they effectively got pound shop Lazarus. (laughs) Right. They got uh, the relics of Saint Lazarus of X. X. X en Provence. Oh right, okay. Sorry, I thought like and like one X, like no, we don't know where he's no, from. It's AIX. Okay. And I did check and that is apparently you do pronounce it X. Okay, that's fine, but He was a fifth century bishop who didn't really seem to do very much. He may have been like one of the earliest bishops. <laughs> oh my god, he's only one step up from Nazarius. Kind of. But the thing is, the people of Utam basically went, Well, we made this mistake. Yeah. Maybe other people will as well. Okay. When when did this happen? <laughs> so this was around the turn of the 11th century. Okay, fine. Because <laughs> I'm just imagining these people, right, going... Okay, they're at a time when there are, like, three heads of John the yeah. Baptist around. There's, like, so much made up of... Like, there's so many pieces of the one true cross yeah. that you could probably build a stable out of it. Like... <laughs> <laughs> How... Flat pack furniture cross. <laughs> How is it that they've managed to get hold of an actual saint and it's the wrong saint? <laughs> also, wouldn't they have gone looking for Lazarus? Yeah. In the Middle East, not in Aison Provence. <laughs> Which I've got to note is probably in France, right? It is, yes. Uh, he what was... are they doing? <laughs> well, what I think happened was someone sold them the relics <laughs> of Lazarus. Okay. And... and it was an actual Lazarus. Like, that is like a bonus. Yeah. Like... Yeah. This is the thing. I think this is how they kind of got away with whatever swindle this was. So they're kind of like, wow, this person has the relics of Lazarus and they're going cheap. Um... That's 
hilarious. (laughs) They probably paid more than they should. Right. But probably not as much as they would have to have paid for the actual Lazarus. Okay. So really, everyone won. (laughs) (laughs) So pilgrims started flocking to the town. And uh, by the 12th century, uh, the cathedral got officially consecrated as the Cathedral of St. Lazarus. Right, great. Um, Yes. But they don't say St. Lazarus of X. No, they don't. (laughs) I've just got this image of like a mean girl going, if you're Lazarus, then why are you dead? <laughs> oh my God, you can't ask Lazarus why he's dead, why he's not dead. <laughs> why he is dead. Why he is dead. Anyway. So uh, what this all leads to is effectively Utan being uh, wealthy mm-hmm. and having a pretty strong religious influence that also allowed it to bring in scholars and open up its own schools. Oh, awesome, yeah. And the schools of rhetoric in Utan were apparently particularly good. They turned out really good scholars. Mm. And one such scholar was a man by the name of Bartholomew Chesonet. And I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I'm not going to spell it because it's a lot of E's and a lot of S's. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But he was born in 1480 in Utan. Mm-hmm. And he went to this school and he was a particularly good student. And the, he was actually, he was kind of born at the most fortuitous time because by the time he was born, Burgundy had just been incorporated into the rest of France. Right. Because prior to that, it had been effectively a separate country. Yeah. But thanks to some mistakes by a previous duke and oh him God. not having an heir meant that the rest of France could incorporate Burgundy. Fabulous. But Great. this was really good for uh, Chesonnet because it allowed him to travel around the rest of France, kind mm. of furthering his education at the different great institutes. Okay. And he had a pretty good CV because he came from Utan and was a an alumnus of this school. Okay. He did briefly have to flee France because there was an outbreak of plague. (laughs) Oh, who hasn't had to flee France? Well, the thing was, this turned out to be really good for Chesonnet. Yeah, because he went to Italy. And in Italy, he studied Roman law. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay. Now, he'd been doing his studies in rhetoric and in law, Mm. and this gave him... He was probably the most knowledgeable lawyer in the whole of France at the time. Okay. Because as I said, even though Roman law did technically apply in the south of France, it was mixed in with a lot of other stuff, Mm. which meant that there were few people who really knew Roman law particularly well. They kind of knew interpretations of it. Right, okay. But Chesonnet has the actual knowledge of the law itself. Yeah. So when he comes back, he is in demand. Like, he gets so many important positions. Uh, he's actually offered the position, a position directly under the king at the time. Okay. Which he refuses because he doesn't want to travel a lot. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he wants a bit more independence, actually. I mean, quite possibly. So... You may think it's a bit odd that by the time 1522 comes around, he's the one they call when a swarm of rats gets put on trial. Okay. It feels a bit beneath him. I mean, yeah, but what else are you going to do? It's medieval law. It's all up and down. I mean, I suppose. But I think it was a factor of it was his hometown mm. and the fact that he was actually a real advocate for animal trials. 
Okay. He, did the Romans like animal trials? They did have some, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but it's not just that. He based his like decision that animal trials were a good thing, not on a sort of like moral platform or a metaphysical platform, like, you know, they, they're morally culpable, but just based on history and legal precedent. Okay. And he does take it from theology, um, but... There's a num there's a number of different things that we have writings from him citing various stories, including one of our favourite stories, uh, which is about Jesus cursing the fig tree. I love the story about Jesus cursing the fig tree. I don't get it. No. So basically, the story goes that Jesus went along to this fig tree that looked, you know, very healthy and everything like that, and he wanted some figs. Reached up, and it wasn't producing any fruit. So Jesus, being pissed off, cursed the tree. Yes. <laughs> and this was one of his arguments as for legal precedent for the trial of animals and non-human creatures, basically. He's aware that a fig tree is not an animal, right? No, but it did... He's arguing that it's kind of the, the same sort of thing. Okay. That the fact that the fig tree was basically false in that it pretended it might have figs and didn't right was justification by jesus to curse the tree so if a fig tree can be condemned in the eyes of our lord an animal can okay so the reason why the fig tree was like cursed by jesus was because it was lying yes exactly <laughs> you're looking you're looking skeptical but jesus didn't curse any other people for lying no this is true but this is the argument chesnay makes and frankly I'll, I'll thank you to not question his judgment he is the foremost lawyer in france in the 16th century sure okay um, fine <laughs> So, we'll get to 1522 and the rats of Utan. They were to be put on trial uh, for basically destroying a load of fields of crops. Yeah, I mean, that's what we kind of expect from rats. Yeah, yeah. There were a load of grain crops around Utan, mm -hmm. and they had destroyed a bunch of them. So it's like, we're going to put these rats on trial. Great. Now, under secular law at the time, these rats wouldn't have been permitted a defense lawyer. Okay. But the ecclesiastical courts always allowed for the possibility of a defence. Why? I don't know. Okay. It just seems to be one of those legal quirks. Sure, fine. Um, but what it meant was that they had to find a lawyer and for whatever reason, Chesney was available. Okay. So he went to defend these rats. He travelled to Utan and he went to the court, which would have been held in the cathedral. And he immediately raised an objection based on legal grounds. Okay. Because in order to stand trial, the rats would have to be summoned, as yeah. would happen at the time, because basically jails would be impractical to have. So rather than, you know, locking people up until their trial, they were basically told, this is your court date. Yeah. If you are not here at the time, we will try you without you being here and you won't be able to defend yourself in any way. Right, but they haven't actually summoned the rats. They did summon the rats. Oh, okay. They did summon the rats, but uh, Chesonet argued that they didn't summon them enough to constitute legal summoning. Okay. His argument was that they had just summoned the rats from Utan. Right. But the fields surrounded the town and neighboured various villages. 
Right. They so, haven't gone and put out proper notices for the no, rats. No, exactly. Okay. So how are the rats that may well have come from these villages, how were they meant to know that they should have appeared in church? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the court basically went, yep, that's a fair cop. <laughs> And, oh my god. And what they did was they sent around notices to be posted on the pulpits of the various churches in the surrounding areas, telling the rats their new court date and when they should appear. Okay. Um slight problem here. Yeah. Can the rats read? No, but that's not been a problem in animal trials before. <laughs> <laughs> They were officially summoned, and therefore, under the law, they should attend. Right, okay. <laughs> God, imagine their faces if the rats actually had turned up. <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> oh, dear. So, it's important for the rats that they should attend and be defended, because the ecclesiastical courts, you might be wondering exactly what powers could they do if they were going to try these rats in absentia without mm. them being there. Yeah. Ecclesiastical courts had a few different punishments they could dole out, one of which was known as minor excommunication. <laughs> This didn't. Sorry, you're just a little bit excommunicated. Yes. Now, right. the, the thing is that this actually was usually applied to humans and not to animals, because what this would usually mean is that you were forbidden from taking the Eucharist, for example. Okay. So, eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. Mm. But it was argued many years prior to this that this wouldn't be useful in the cases of things like slugs yeah. because slugs did not take the Eucharist. That's true. So forbidding them from taking it wasn't really a punishment yeah, because they didn't do it anyway. And technically they weren't allowed to do it because they hadn't taken the sacraments. Exactly. Like you have to, you have yeah. to go through the whole process. Exactly. Okay. So they developed instead a form of major excommunication called anathematization. Right. And this basically uh, would say that these creatures were accursed in the eyes of God. Okay. And that God would dole out the punishment. Right, that makes sense. So I think this kind of goes back to that thing of you're wanting to blame someone. Mm. So the idea is that or some people have suggested that the reason for these ecclesiastical trials is that people wanted someone to blame mm -hmm. and they didn't just want, you know, God to intervene because they prayed. They wanted kind of an artifice to it. They wanted a ceremony about it. So it feels more real. Yeah. So that's why a trial, which, you know, is a very official thing, could take place. And then they kind of go, the church has agreed that these things are bad. Mm -hmm. Therefore, God's going to agree and he's going to sort it all out for us. I'd also argue that it goes a little bit deeper than that. Even. Go for it. Um, just because, you know, like I said at the beginning that medieval people really, really loved legal stuff. Yeah. Um, to the extent that, okay, so there's a medieval drama that used to get performed in a lot of different towns called the cycle drama. Oh, I've heard about this before. You've told me, I think many years ago, you told me about this. Yeah, so the cycle drama is pretty cool. They still celebrate it in York every few years. Oh, nice. Um, and basically you're on the... You have people, like just townspeople, from the different various guilds, and yeah. they perform bits out of the Bible um, on right. little carts that go round the city. So they perform the same uh, thing yeah. multiple times. But if you stand in the same place, you see the whole of the Bible yeah. as understood by medieval people. Which was not as much as you might think. <laughs> it's like, 
it's really specific scenes. Yeah. And we still have some of the scripts from mm. some of these cycles. And I think the one that I'm thinking about is from the York cycle. Okay. And it's the harrowing of hell. Oh, right. Okay. So the harrowing of hell is super interesting because this particular one, they've got this idea. So for those of you who don't know, the idea is that when Jesus was crucified, you know, he came back three days later on the Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, so in between that, you get the harrowing of hell, which is when Jesus died, he went down to hell because that was the only place available yeah. at the time. Um, according to medieval Christian thought. Yeah. He went down to hell and he managed to fight the devil and get all of the people in hell who shouldn't be in hell out. Yeah. And they go to heaven. So people like, say, Adam and Eve get yeah. to be freed from eternal suffering. I, I, We've said this before in private, but damn, that would make a good video game. It would. It was like super cool. Like a ridiculous cool. action-adventure, o- over-the-shoulder rpg thing you play as jesus going through hell fighting various demons well this is the thing we imagine like jesus fighting like literally fighting right no okay (laughs) it's a legal argument oh amazing Um, so in (laughs) in the harrowing of hell scene yeah in i think the york cycle um they like it's literally jesus argues that the devil has got no claim to the souls of the dead right and go they go through various different like actual legal arguments until jesus wins and the devil has to let them go (laughs) because they have they had so much sort of like reliance on the court systems that first of all that was something that everyone could recognize because like the average medieval peasant used to spend about six weeks out of the year in court or something ridiculous like that and also because they figured that if it works for on for humans then that's what must happen with heaven and hell it's all legal yeah so i reckon when they did this when they did these courts the ecclesiastical ones they thought we will say this is what God has to do because right. that's like God's part of the contract. Yeah, that totally that makes a lot of sense. To yeah, be but they had a lot of faith in this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> this is kind of why I think we we raise an eyebrow when Game of Thrones was really popular and people were like, "Oh my God, it's like actual medieval stuff." Like, <laughs> no, they would be in court like fifty percent of the time <laughs> on that show. <laughs> And it would be far less arbitrary courts. I mean, okay, instead of the Red Wedding, right? Yeah. He would just have got taken to court most of the time. You'd have a really long argument about how he'd already made this contract to marry this girl. (laughs) And how he'd broken that contract. And now he needs to pay a massive fine. Yeah. Which would have bankrupted the North and thus they couldn't pay their soldiers and the war would be over. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So anyway, back to our current story. Mm. So yes, that, that... Sounds like a very possible like reason for why this trial would have taken place. And obviously, the rats don't want this to happen. No, the rats <laughs> don't want God to hate them. Exactly. So they need to appear in court. Yeah. So they're, by this time, their third court date comes around. And of course, they don't appear. Oh, those rats. They're really They're really bad at showing up. But... Chesney is he's not worried about this okay. because he has another argument up his sleeve. <laughs> okay. Another argument based again on legal precedent. Right. And he said that the court summoned was again insufficient to apply legally. Right. And the reason for this is that in order for the rats to travel to Utan to face their court, they would be putting themselves in mortal danger because okay. of cats. <laughs> I'm not lying. No. This is his argument. What? Because okay. 
He he specifically <laughs> says that uh, they would face a, an enemy that would pounce upon them. Right. And this enemy is cats. Okay. Because you could always say to humans, you know, don't deal with, don't like hurt these rats while they're on the way to court. Yes. But you couldn't do the same to cats. So the only way that the church could guarantee safe passage for the rats to stand trial would be to get armed guards to Uh herd them to the cathedral. Well, the rats? Yes. Okay. And try and protect them from the cats. Even then, he says this wouldn't be sufficient because a cat could always dart in, grab a rat and dart out. But the uh, legal system at the time required that people were able to attend their summons. And he said they cannot because they would be putting themselves in danger. See, I love this because like, he's following these ideas of legal precedent, mm. but I assume he's also like reinforcing what the legal precedent should be for humans. Absolutely. And this will come into play a little bit later on. Awesome. Um, so at this point, the church basically has two choices. Right. They throw out the trial. Yeah. Or they pay a load of money to get armed guards to herd rats towards the cathedral. <laughs> yeah. One of these, I think you will agree, is a much more attractive option. I mean, it's the armed guards, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) No. They decide they cannot be bothered with this. It would be too expensive. It would be ridiculous. And it would... It would would make the church look like an absolute laughingstock. Exactly. And then you'd have a church full of rats. Exactly. It's not really what you want. Yeah. So they decide, done with this. Right. The rats are free to go. (laughs) We'll throw this case out. Okay. So Chesney managed to get these rats acquitted effectively. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, like I said, there are some people who do dispute this story and there are lots of arguments either way. Um, One of the main bits of evidence that we have is kind of like at this stage, like a fourth-hand source, uh, which was from a book by a man called E.P. Evans, Mm -hmm. uh, which is The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals. Now, he actually did not like Chesonet. (laughs) Okay. He wrote this book in 1906, and he was collating various different animal trial stories. Okay. And he constantly rips the piss out of Chesonet and the whole thing. He basically says that he, like, he literally says he speaks twaddle. Right. Using the word twaddle. (laughs) He's aware that as a historian, you're not really meant to judge the people of the past. He clearly doesn't think that because he judges Chesonet at every turn. (laughs) So it may be that this story was kind of there to kind of say what a bore Chesonet was. That he, you know, meandered around all these minutiae of legal precedent Mm, and that okay. he just yeah he just wanted to show that he was cleverer than other people he was really boring and annoying and everything like that right um hit the main source for this story though seems to be an overheard conversation that the writer didn't actually hear wait the main source for the story you've just told me about the rats yes an overall an overheard conversation that the writer didn't actually hear yes oh yeah but it uh, there is a certain amount of precedent. Not precedent, that's not the word I'm looking for. I'm going back to legal stuff. <laughs> there, there, there may be some truth to it. Okay. Because the story is initially told when around the year 1540, a friend of Bartholomew Chesney comes to him and basically says that he needs to speak up for a group of heretics. Okay. Because these heretics were going to be tried 
But they uh, they were going to be tried in absentia. Right. Because they couldn't come to the court. Because it was dangerous. Because it was too dangerous. Yeah. And this friend basically said, you need to defend them as you did the rats in Utan. Oh, okay. Because just like the rats, if they were to come to court, they would be putting their lives in danger because mm. like heresy, you know, pretty bad. Yeah. People didn't like heretics. But you, if you rely on the minutiae of the court, you're more likely to get away with stuff. Exactly. Right. So this is why it suggested that this was a thing yeah like that is the earliest that we hear of it there are records later it's just that they are somewhat disputed okay but despite that i i like the story regardless and that the idea of animal trials is really interesting and actually does have uh some use in the modern day like Mm. Animal trials and their history led in many places to the creation of animal rights. Okay. Because if you have rights under law, then you have other sorts of rights as well. Mm. And it led to uh, laws in place that protect animals. Yeah. So I mean, that makes sense if we go back to our idea of the pig. Yeah. Like the idea that you can't neglect your pig in case exactly. it kills somebody. Exactly. Like, so ends up being like you got to look after your pigs, man. Yeah, so while animal trials seem like a really silly thing, because they are a yeah, really yeah. <laughs> silly thing, we can't deny that, but they do actually have... A, a, they had an effect on history and may well have helped the cause of people to actually be able to, you know, fight their case in court, like these heretics. Because otherwise, they would have just been put on trial and probably sentenced to death without actually being able to face the court. Yeah. Which is a really big thing in our legal history. You have to be able to go to court. Mm. And these rats may well have influenced (laughs) that decision. Oh my God. Thank you for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4, and you can suggest episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song and acronym, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in the pod. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and defend rats. Bye!